Ladies and gentlemen, coal is the future of South Africa. We've said it, and we agree with Uncle Guidi. But you know what? Don't take our word for it. We've got a crown prince on the show to tell us why coal is the future. Hello, Mr. Adil. Thank you for coming on our show. Thank you so much, and uh, really thank you for the invitation. Can you tell us a little bit as to who you are and what you're the crown prince of? Well, my name is Adil, Adil in Chabileng. Uh, I'm the crown prince of uh, the Babedi people. It's a nation based in the northern part of uh, you know South Africa, which is called Limpopo. So I come from that uh, region. My name, which is the same name in Chabileng, is actually the village which the Chabileng nation people live in, in that uh, you know part of Limpopo area. So yeah, I happen to be born in that family, on the royal family side of it, and I'm the crown prince you know, uh, of the entitled right and heir to the throne. So, It's not often we get royalty on I this show. But, uh... on, on, on anything on royalty and stuff, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we are in the in the presence of, of royalty, Byron, so we need to behave ourselves. We should have dressed a bit better. Absolutely. We apologize um, for that. No, no, no. no. <laughs> Well, I'll speak for myself. I was on the yeah. I was on the farm dealing with horses, so I have an excuse. Right. What reminds excuses? Hey, I don't know. Look, he's at home. He can't even wear a suit and tie in the presence of royalty. Ladies and gentlemen, yeah. judge him harshly. Judge him harshly. And and harshly, I will be judged. That is for sure. So, so Crown Prince, we've spoken a little bit off camera, and, and you are a, a very much interested in sort of baseload energy of South Africa, and especially the use of coal. Uh, so we have spoken about baseload on the show before, but perhaps can you please just explain to us what baseload is and why, in your opinion, coal should be the material used for the baseload? Baseload energy simply means the minimum required electricity or energy required in a grid. For instance, on a daily basis, South Africa consumes <clears throat> roughly about 30,000 megawatts of electricity throughout the whole country, which means the entire grid and all the power stations that are producing must produce megawatts that matches up the demand. The current demand is between 30 to 33, depending on the cycles. So base load is the electricity that must be fed into the grid simultaneously at the rate that it meets the demand. And if it does not meet the demand, it means then we have to now reduce the current demand capacity, the demand coming from consumers. That is why they bring in load shedding. So base load is that minimum electricity requirement that consumers are demanding out of the electricity grid. And to meet that, you need a reliable 24, 7, 365 days electricity machinery, like your power generators that are running 24 hours that don't stop. And when they stop, they get scheduled to stop so that there will be something that fits in its place. And in between that, it produces 365 days a year, electricity uninterrupted. So that's what we call baseload electricity. Anything out of that has all other terms. We call it, you know, intermittent electricity, which is your renewables, for instance. It comes and goes, wind, solar, whether it's hydro, whether it's to do with battery storage, whether it's to do with other sources. But the main current suppliers in the current economy of electricity is coal mainly in South Africa. Nuclear, gas, fuels in terms of fossil fuels like your gas, uh, your diesel, your petroleum, whatever it is that they are using. And then you're getting to hydro. And then now of late, they are trying to add onto the base load 
which is electricity coming from solar and wind, which cannot be added unless there is something we call peakers that comes in with electricity from solar and wind, and it matches that required frequency level to balance the grid. They have to fire up diesel-fired or gas-fired peakers, which is power plants that are just in ready to meet the demand as well as the electricity pushed out of solar and wind to balance it onto the grid. Mm -hmm. And so far that doesn't happen except in seldom areas where ESCOM pushes it in and carries the current suppliers of solar to actually bring them onto the grid. So the base load is the minimum of what you require in your electricity grid to meet your daily demands. If your demand is higher than your base load, uh, current capacity grid, it means that you will have to load shed a lot of people and that's why we have in power cuts in South Africa. The demand is higher than the current availability of power plants. And that is why we have load shedding and power cuts. Now, our understanding is that the power plants that are there are actually able to meet baseload and have been able to meet baseload for a long time. The problem is twofold. The first is we know that European standards want us to cut the fuel emissions and go green, net zero, mm -hmm. you know, that old 2030 agenda. And the other problem is obviously that around the coal power stations that we have, there's this decommissioning cycle where we've got some of the old ones and they're going to basically decommission them. As they're decommissioning, it's actually taking power availability off the grid and actually reducing what we could do as baseload. So let's, as you use an example, if the baseload used to be 40, now it will be like 35. But that doesn't mean that demand has shrunk. So the idea mm. that the rate pushed forward was that what we would do is we would clog up the decom or we would plug in for the decommissioned baseload at say the extra five being from renewables. But we've recently heard from other podcasts that we've done that the ability to do that and have reliability, which is what you need for base, you need reliability is non-existent. So in the previous, in a previous podcast that we did, it was suggested that the way it's supposed to be run and you, you can correct me on this, is that you have an existing infrastructure that can meet base, then you plug in renewables and you basically say, okay, base runs at 100% at 40, we're going to run it at, say, 70% and we can plug in some stuff from renewables, which will just maybe idle there. But the minute those renewables are no longer at a point where they can provide stuff, we just ramp up base load again and base load provides the extra capacity that renewables can't. So it's kind of like this matching or this leveling type process. But the problem we have now is that currently we don't even have baseload the ability to meet the demands of the country. So what's the point in trying to like uh, reduce the stress on base? You have to sort out base first and then you can reduce the stress on it. And as far as we understand, and again, you can tell if we're wrong, the best way to sort out base is with coal because that's what we have and it's the most reliable. Absolutely. Look, coal is the bedrock of South Africa's electricity and electricity generation, whether we like it or not, or whether we want to talk all fancy new hype and, uh, you know, technology ideas of going green or whatever. I mean, it doesn't help the discussion. Coal remains the strong bedrock of South Africa's electricity generation. And it's historically so. It was done for that reason, because during the time of sanctions, when apartheid was faced with economic sanctions coming out of global pressures, they had no any other resources to rely on except to use their coal for all sorts of things. They used it for crude, they used it for electricity generation, they used it for steel, they used it for cement. They used it in industries across. 
So they found even the way of creating baseload power stations that we have today using the most cheapest, roughest, useless coal, because the current coal we're using in the power plants is almost the lowest calorific grade, which was used by apartheid as a means to make sure that they can actually feed as a source to power up the power stations. Post that period is, what then happened is South Africa failed to build additional baseload power plants, your coal power plants, your nuclear power plants, because there was a lot of pressures internationally that said South Africa must move away. Even the decommissioning of, uh, for instance, um, <clears throat> if you go to the nuclear power base, there was the high enrichment in terms of uranium power nuclear, which was to do with weapons grade, as well as technology in respect to nuclear weaponry and technology. They had to downgrade, and that is why there was a settlement to say in, in downgrading that we will give you Quebec power station to operate rather now even as a electricity power station. So they commissioned that and they made sure that it actually gets to be synchronized with the network as a nuclear power station because they were downgrading from the weapons grade technology of nuclear, which was at the time highly enriched and was weapons level. So coming back to coal, the same thing when that was happening. You needed the coal industrialization to create your synthetic fuels. Sasol was using coal to create crude oil. They couldn't receive oil from abroad because there were sanctions in South Africa. And on top of it, they had to ensure that they created the economic base that we are enjoying today as South Africa's miracle of economic boom. But then what happened post-94 is that entire project was actually stopped before 94. There was something called the De Villiers Commission in 1986 that came up with a report to say, stop building all forms of infrastructure, rail, road, stop building infrastructure in terms of telecommunications, stop building infrastructure in terms of power and power lines as well as uh, uh, power stations. Why? Because South Africa will be moving away from being a apartheid state to a new democratic state. And in there, we don't need to be wasting money investing in that infrastructure. That report came out in 1986 before the first negotiations happened to move away from uh, apartheid into a new democratic system. So since then, there's just been a lot of international interference that said South Africa should not concentrate in terms of its, its key power infrastructure. Remember, power is sovereignty. And with electricity, you have industrialization, you have state of the art in terms of technology, you have industries, you have the creation of your own sovereign power and geopolitical might. The reason why South Africa could provide other countries with electricity is because they could control them militarily. And it was based on that. And people don't want to accept that fact. But it is the fact that you, the more power you have, the more capacity to control your neighboring countries with your power as a tool for deterrence, as well as ensuring that you can be in a cooperative compliance. And this is one of the things that we're trying to bring to the understanding of the current politicians to understand that you, you don't don't play with the power space on the basis that it just sounds nice to 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 go new and nouveau ideas and let's try this and let's put this away and all of that. It's not about that. It's about your mm -hmm. state, your sovereignty, and your power. That is why major powerful countries, China, USA, India, Russia. You know, the, the South American countries don't play when it comes to their electricity. You tamper with the electricity. They even go to the point where in China, they'll cut your throat. You know, they'll hang you. It's as simple as that. I mean, they don't negotiate. 80% of China's power comes out of uh, coal, by the way. 
and they don't have negotiations around these issues. You know, you're not going to take their coal from, out of China and export it anywhere. Which is coming from Australia, by the way. So they, the majority of coal coming from Australia, which wants the rest of the world to have yeah. green energy. Go green. No, but, and, and China has its own coal mines. There's a large coal uh, yes. basin in China, and they top it up with the Australian imported coal and South African imported coal. So the coal that they're getting from us is the one that they use for industrial reasons, where they do production mm. of steel and other things. And that's why when you go to China, which I've taught almost the whole of China, when you enter the industrial zones, you will see all of the minerals mountains across the railways because they just get in there on the railway, they dip them off on the railway side. So when you come there, you see their minerals wealth that comes from Africa, Australia and elsewhere on their rail siding. And next to it is the entrance into their factories where they do the SCZ and that's where they do the steel, the production of various components and materials and technology out of it. And we are just importers of this huge, highly valuable resource. But China produces a thousand percent out of what they've paid for. If they pay the rent, they're going to bring it back to you as a thousand rent. And we pay for it. So in, the interesting crown prince, I mean, we, we spoke about Gates and McKenzie of the Patrick Alliance about this. And, and he, one of his policies is to have, well, you can ex, you can extract our minerals, but you must refine it here. We don't want to export it at one rand and then bring it back at a thousand rand at the, as a finished product. So that's actually a very good point you're making. The interesting part is the De Villiers report, of which I've never heard. I must be honest, it's not something I ever heard before, where there was a, a conscious decision to stop industrializing South Africa because it's going to be democratic. And it goes back yeah. to this idea of sovereignty. South Africa has always been a sort of experimental lab of empires, right? The British came, they, they beat the Boers, they beat uh, the Black tribes, the Zulus especially, and then they've sort of imposed segregation, racial segregation mm -hmm. in South Africa. The Afrikaners took that, created apartheid. When the apartheid took place, uh, after a while, sanctions took place. It forced the Nats to sort of industrialize themselves because they had no other help. Once you become a democracy, you open up this new experiment, right? Where because you are free and there's a constitution, one assumes a lot of empires around the world come in and try to jostle and have influence around that, whether it be Russia or China or the US or the UK. So what we're finding, especially since 94, South Africa is still an experimental lab for empires. That's why perhaps there's no policy direction in terms of energy, whereas arguably sovereignty and energy policy should be the first thing you don't negotiate on. But that hasn't been the case. Do you agree with that, with that statement? Yeah, I totally agree with it because remember, uh, a lot of people don't know this. I happen to know it because from a royal base of view, we have to know these things, right? When they took our land, it was taken on the basis that it was annexed and it was annexed by the British. What you're sitting in today, the land of South Africa called South Africa, was actually an act created by the British Parliament in 1909, enacted mm -hmm. in 1910, called the Act of South Africa. So the country you know as South Africa is actually a British protectorate. What has happened over the years is they have changed agreements in order to ensure that the ownership of that country does not long anymore look like it's a British colony ownership, but it's a sovereign democratic state. That means nothing. It's just words. I mean, the constitution we're sitting with is as a words of nice constitution that doesn't give you anything because it protects the property of the owners of the land. So when we go back to the real ownership of this land, it's, it's a British protectorate and it's still a British sovereign right. So everything we talk about, 
the Act of South Africa is still a British Act. It has not been, uh, what you call it, nullified, has not been completely removed. The British own South Africa. You can jump up and down and say whatever you want. You have to go back to the British Parliament and get them to agree that they're giving us total freedom. What they gave us in 94 was a settlement negotiation to say, look, we change the management. Take it away from the Afrikaners, the nationalists, give it to the new guys, the ANC, and let them try out the management system. So what you're saying is exactly the case. There's a lot of imperial empire's interest because they own the country. They have what we call uh, DFIs, which is direct uh, foreign direct investment. And that foreign direct investment means the direct ownership of everything that is sovereign, that is capital asset, and that is about South Africa. So these are facts that most people are very naive about. That is why when you talk about the Reserve Bank, when you talk about the Treasury, there are certain things that are unnegotiable. And we know it as a fact, but unfortunately, the majority of politicians are naive to the reality. So we have to get back to the fundamentals to say, yes, we assume we're free. To what extent can we exercise our freedom? Because the minute you say you want to do one, two, three, suddenly there's a problem. You know, Lord so-and-so from London now comes in heavy in South Africa and starts harassing politicians and telling the president we're going to remove you. Why? Because you're tampering with an asset that is foreign and dominated in terms of ownership. So we have to change that pattern. And the only way to change it is to completely be delinked from the Commonwealth model where we are still right. under the British statehood and control, where it can be an African country under its own sovereignty with its own rules and ambitions. So that is why energy is a big thing. The energy policy in South Africa is determined by Britain. It's determined by Europe. Okay. I mean, you have these Germans running around South Africa, cursing coils, sitting in Treasury, telling Treasury what to do, by the way, on how the, uh, um, the policy with regards to IRP and all of those things should be implemented. So the interference is heavy and, and people are afraid to speak the truth. And, you know, I'm saying basic truth because it doesn't hurt to know the truth that we are an empire that is dominated Absolutely. by the British. The question becomes, how do we change that? And how do we go and negotiate amongst the British to say, we want our total freedom, not the current on a string leash type of a situation. And coal, if we forget its use in South Africa and the history where it comes from, you know, apartheid was an evil system. But there were clever engineers in apartheid during the Nationalist Party government who understood global dynamics and politics and they understood how to play. It is that knowledge we need to carry forward of engineering excellence and ability to turn a country into a successful, growing economy and society where we all can be enjoying a middle-class life. Black, white, Indian, colored, Chinese now who are black, everybody. We can all be enjoying what South Africa's prosperity is all about. And that's what we want. It's not to tell anybody to say, get off and whatever it is, the land issues and all of those things. It's about equal prosperity for all South Africans. And to do that, you need electricity and energy. And that is why our whole debate is around energy, because you're without energy, you have nothing to talk about. But the total interference by these NGOs, by what I've just explained to you, that the people who are owning South Africa, who are controlling it in terms of its foreign reserves, its current uh, foreign direct investment in South Africa, as well as the policy making, are the ones causing us chaos. Okay, so there's a few things that you've said 
that you see the problem is the media has trained people to think in a certain way. So I know for a de facto fact, there are a few things you've said that our audience will be like, oh, alarm bells, they'll be scared. The one is around the land back to the people, right? So we've done this exercise with Gaten before and it was very, it was a very useful exercise to do. So we're going to do it with you as well. Number one, you're not after expropriating people's homes in the suburbs. They are not on your radar to expropriate my house in wherever I live, right? That's not what you're talking about. Absolutely. Look, expropriation of land does not even talk about surface and anything above the surface. It's talking about the land sovereignty and the land rights that are land. So, so the land and rights. Below. Let's just be specific. So it's it's down to the minerals in the country. So basically, it's the idea that when we take out our minerals, the ability to decide what is done with them, whether they're used in this land or whether they're exported, cannot be decided by the people of the country. We don't get a say in what happens. So a foreign company exactly. can come here, mine the crap out of the Karoo, take all of our gas. We've got the seventh largest quantity of gas in the world, and they can just yeah. chuck it on a ship and off they go. And we can be like, hey, hey, guys, that's ours. And they'll just say, hey, Futek, when that's nothing to do with you. And we just have to shrug our shoulders and go, oh, okay, well, it's lost. That's what you're exactly. talking about. Exactly. Byron, right now, ask yourself, why is it that we're not making money from the minerals that South Africa is it's exporting? Why are we not getting oh, I, a sovereign I'm in the same camp. Value? Hmm. Because if you go to Saudi Arabia, they own every ounce and every barrel of oil. You pay them on the stock price of today, on the spot price of oil. Hmm. So if Saudi, they mined out, they extracted, say, 100 barrels of oil today, they get in their account, their sovereign account, a hundred barrels worth of the stock market price of today. It doesn't happen in mm. South Africa. We don't get the stock price of our minerals, whether it's platinum, gold, oil, or whatever it is that we produce in South Africa. We don't get it at that rate because we don't hold a sovereign right on the minerals. Companies come in and get given yeah. the rights and they do what they wish with that mineral. So we are saying that the rights of the Mining, the nationalization of mining is to make sure that we own the sovereign rights of these minerals and are deposited. The guys who are extracting it, it's an extraction exercise. It's a different kind of debate. Anyone can come and mine the land, but the sale of mm. the commodity coming out of the land, and I'm clarifying this because a lot of people come up with a whole lot of confusion around it. The sale of the commodity coming out of the mm. land should be paid as a sovereign revenue and should be deposited into the sovereign account of South Africa so that we can create a proper wealth fund like any other country that is selling commodities globally. That's the one part. On the land side of it, so the, I've got houses, all right? My houses, including even my mother's house in my uh, township, cannot be expropriated. I mean, that's nonsensical. When we say expropriation, we're not going to take people's houses and take people's farms and take people's properties. No, it's talking about the expropriation of the land rights the minerals, the water, the resources, and everything that is creates the maximum value of exploitation, mm -hmm. not habitation. Anything you build on the right, the land you have, you have the right to it. The same thing they did in Britain. Do you know that the land in Britain is nationalized, but you can own a house. You can own a title in terms of a, right, a block of by the queen. Exactly. True so story, the Ramon. land it's rights belong to the queen and the kingdom. Oh, king now. The same thing we're talking about.
in South Africa, they don't give us such rights. Why? Because they are clever about the property rights. So the issues that, for instance, I think what um, the Afri Forum and them are, are, are telling people about how when expropriation of land is going to happen, they're going to take away their houses and all. It's all nonsensical. They are misleading people because they want membership and funding and support. We are not interested in that from any black perspective of what we talk about. We talk about the resources and the value of those resources benefiting all South Africans into the national sovereign account. When we produce gold today, if it's traded at an X amount, that money must be paid for that spot trade day into the South African sovereign account. Those that are mining it get paid for their mining value that they're extracting and they work on a contracted level. And then we have a country that grows and that can show that it's got a strength of its own. That is the debate we're having. So the land issue, the minerals issue is clear and settled. On the water side of it, as well as the aspect of producing uh, <clears throat> agriculture and everything, no agricultural reserve is going to be taken from anybody because land has been expropriated. And nobody will lose their farm because the land expropriation says we must take our farms. We're not talking about taking away anybody's farm. Productive farmland belongs to those that have bought the right for that farmland. The land below it is not the farm owner's land in any way. It's never been. You know that, right? Yes. So, so let's just clarify this because, again, they don't have the rights yeah. of the minerals anyway. So that, this is, this is what I want to clarify. Yeah, so this is what I no. want to clarify because, again, I know the media has trained the audiences around the world to view this debate in a certain way. So let's just be very clear when you say they don't own the rights to the land below. So just so the audience knows, the audience is trained to believe that what you're saying is anything below the grass doesn't belong, belong to them. That's not what you're saying. You're saying if you dig further than a certain level, then you will eventually get to possibly minerals such as, I don't know, gold or something. And Resources what you're are. saying is when you get to a certain level – when you start to mine, like let's say 100 meters down and you're starting to mine, that's not yours. You can't withdraw it. So even if you find it, let's say you dig a well on your property and it goes really far and I don't know, you strike oil, the mm -hmm. oil's not yours. It's a mineral resource. And so when you're saying that, what you're saying is it needs to be very clear that if a person does that, that no one can go there and say, oh, it's mine, I'm, I'm sending it all to Europe because I'm selling it to the Germans at a cheap price. Mm. That's what mm. you're talking about. Exactly. And it's currently the current policy. Remember the mine, uh, the, you know, the farmers don't own the land below, by the way. They own the surface, the surface right and use, which is a title. That is why they call it a title deed. You know, it's one of the other things that mm. one, one of the shows we must discuss what really does a title deed means when we own houses. It doesn't mean anything below. If you discover... Gold underneath my house right now doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to my neighbor who's sharing the line of that gold with me because anything that is surface and below the surface belongs to the state. It's under the current accountability and creatorship of the state. They are the ones that can give out the rights to the mm. mineral, the access to that mineral, including the water and everything. You know, So all of those rights currently are not even are nationalized anyway under the uh, Minerals Rights Act and all of those things. So... When you say you're, nation, you're taking away, you're expropriating, we're talking about the whole of South Africa's land in terms of mass with its mineral and resources value. 
not your houses, not the malls, not these places, because everybody creates the hype that people want to do away with property ownership and title hold. No, it's not yeah, that. That's because they saw Zimbabwe. So they're worried they will become Zimbabwe. <laughs> no, but, but that was also no, Byron, the, the Zimbabwe was not Vendex Proporation. It was a different, completely annexation of, of property as well as taking no, away that, of private but, property. But just remember, that, the house, that's the way the media trains people. The media trains, trains no. people to mm. think that. 100%. So when they hear the story, they go, Zim, Zim. And that's, that association, that word association is right there. So that harp and that linkage is, is there. It, Ramon would probably call it a psyop. It's a psyop, I suppose. It's designed yeah, to I mean, make you think away. In, in exactly. my defense, in my yeah. defense, a, a lot of the stuff sounds 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 very good, and it, and it's something that I would love to see in South Africa as as a proud nationalist. I'm very like a South African nationalist, but that idea is only as good and as trustworthy as a government who wishes to implement anything with it. And I think that is where people are finding it mm. tough to believe. They look at South Africa today, they look at it deindustrializing, they look at the corruption and things like that. And they think to themselves, well, if we give these chaps even more power to determine yeah. whatever they want to do with expropriation, and especially the messaging around expropriation was for the large part, Crown Prince, it was about vengeance especially from the EFF, mm. but especially from the ANC, it was about, it's about writing a wrong, so, you know, the original sin and all yeah. those messages came through in terms of EWC. So it's no wonder people don't really, you know, trust the messenger in this case. Mm. No, no, Roman, you see the, 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 the media is very smart because it spins out these things into a, a no longer discussion. They make it into a vengeance issue. You know, we're coming for your farm, we're coming for your houses and all of that. And they create the, they, they create the, 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 the spooky ghost-like issues like what happened to Zimbabwe and people's houses and farms were taken away. That was not expropriation of land. I mean, that we must be very clear, you know. And the other thing is the reality of it is there in that issue. At one point, I'll explain to you what really happened. I mean, you know, in terms of how it was done and why and who benefited the most out of it. So that, that's one thing. In South Africa, we're too civil. I mean, my own tribe, okay, this Gukuni, tribe, the people of the Vapedi, lost a major portion of land in South Africa. In South Africa, when the British annexed it in 1885 and 1886, when they took over the whole land, it was between Limpopo River and the Val River. So the whole of what we talk about, the Transvaal, belonged to our family, belonged to our tribe and our people. And we are the ones that have the most claim over this land. And yet you don't hear us frantically talking about how and all of these things is going to be done. Why? Because we, we clearly understand what it means as a topic and what it means in terms of a title ownership. But, I mean, again, media has its own stance. When they want to make something completely uh, unfamous or they want to tarnish it, they create a lot of scare tactics around it, you know, and how people explain it and what people explain out of it. From my understanding, the EFF, I mean, I'm, I'm close to Julius. I know him personally. And, uh, you know, we come from the same, uh, you uh, know, please, village, please get us an interview. Please, Limpopo. please, please. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I, when I, we discussed. We just the, wanted to get, get us an interview. <laughs> no, no, I'll make sure. Look, Julius is a lovely person. He's a very clear, wonderful individual. He's misquoted and misunderstood in many ways. You know, and then we need him in South Africa because he's a clear voice of conscience. Some issues, he really articulates them and he is very clear about. He's been supportive on the issue of 
fighting for coal, fighting for nuclear, fighting for energy in South Africa. And one of the first parties that did the biggest march to ESCOM, which we were partnering in that march, and we joined the EFF on the largest march that they did from Santin to uh, Megawatt Park in uh, 2021, I think, or 2020, just before the COVID started, when Android Reuters was just employed, you know, initially employed in a few mm. days. So, you know, they understand the issues. Unfortunately, they get painted into a wrong corner in a picture by people who are trying to tarnish the image of their party. You know, I belong to the ANC. I understand the ANC policy from a, a broader perspective. And there are certain policies I disagree with in terms of how we are articulating some of our positions. And the beauty of the ANC is you can disagree because it's a it's a broad sort of you know space where we can contest ideas. We, we are a democratic mm. party. We can contest ideas. If I don't agree with you, we go into a conference, just, just for... we go over policy, and we bash it until we all agree on a resolution to say, okay, fine. What is the compromise to this issue? So that is why you see some of the issues are shifting and are changing from time to time because there has to be a compromise to say what is in the best interest from a national perspective. So based on that, the whole debate of most of South Africa's debate, because when we debate land, people don't understand how it has affected the livelihoods of black people. Today, our people don't have houses. They can't buy houses in Santin. They can't buy houses in Waterkloof. They can't buy houses in uh, Cape Town, uh, you know, Clifton or wherever, because there's no land capacity and that land is already occupied by people who have already created the highest value and protected others from coming in. So when we say we want access to land is to dwell on, not land expropriation for the sake of just taking it away from somebody and not creating value out of it. And somebody asked the question, he says, yeah, you want land, what are you going to do with it? And I said, but why would you ask such a stupid question? What about the people who got land today? What are they doing with it? Why are you not asking the same question to them? You know, because there's always a view that black people want land, but they don't have a clue what they're going to do with it. I said, you've got malls. You've got Cape Town, which you have created into one of the biggest tourist region and city uh, city in the world. You've got uh, Mpumalanga in terms of the game reserves. You've got uh, Devon, which has some of the highest tourism attraction in terms of, you know, tourism in South Africa, where people go to in terms of warm beaches and everything. But you never pose the same question to say, why black people can't you extract this value and increase it to create a national reserve for us to all live out of. And these are the ideas I'm I'm propagating for. Because as president of Transformers, I say, we're not talking transformation that has to do with destroying. We want to restore value, build on the current successes, the past successes, and on top of it, increase the current technological advancement and make this country a beautiful country for everybody to live in, in a transformed sense, like what we are doing. We are fairly young people. We found each other on various spaces. We are interacting where there's no issue of race. There's no issue of nationality. Whether you went uh, to yesterday, you were at the boss Berat summit, it doesn't matter because we agree on the same ideas today. That's the South Africa we want. And that is the South Africa we want to build. You know, and this is what politics are trying to prevent because they are creating the T-shirt colors to clash with each other so that there's never an agreement on the fundamentals to bring in and build in this uh, you know, economy and country in South Africa. So most of us have found each other on the energy debate because we all mm. agree that we can't tolerate load sharing. And the beauty of it is when ANC lost this you know, uh, sort of gauntlet on leading on energy, it created a problem for everybody. South Africans, black, white, Indian and colored, we were all affected by load sharing. It was not only to one segment of our society and the rest are okay, you know. 
So it all brought yeah. us together, which is a good thing in a way. So Crown Prince, I, I do apologize. We we don't have too much time left, but I, I think I want to take on a, a very important uh, two statements from us. Number one, why aren't you the spokesperson for the ANC? Because I think you're very persuasive <laughs> and a wonderful orator. And I think if, if someone like you had the... Uh, the, the, the public presence uh, to discuss these issues in public, I think the ANC would find itself with a much easier time, uh, to be honest with you. And, and number two, going back to that original idea of South Africa being an experiment, especially by, the, the, by Britain, is, is it not the fact that perhaps the solution might be to sort of decentralize the state as much as possible? give a lot of power to local communities who, who might have land that might have minerals on it and give them the power and, and the political will to sort of decide how to, to run their affairs in a more honest way that benefits them, that benefits their community and possibly benefits South Africa as well. Because I think with this top-down approach, it's, it's very messy, it's, it's complicated and, and no one's exactly certain about the policy, but we should perhaps decentralize and give every sort of community a say in how their affairs are run, especially in terms of the mineral wealth. Yeah. As, as an example would be to give you back your kingdom and say, you're a kingdom. So it's effectively, you know, something we've talked about quite a bit, possibly one of the solutions to fix the, the mess of South Africa is to actually break up South Africa and actually restore it to what it's supposed to be. South Africa is a collection of kingdoms. You and, you know, we know that and it's a fact. So is it not better to, to restore the kingdoms to their glory and allow people to go back to, as Ramon rightly says, decentralized model? I suppose what the DA would call federalism, but we just don't want any DA branded bullshit that we've all seen. Look, that idea was implemented already. Remember when 94 came, they created the provinces and the provinces in it has all those structures. You know, you've got the legislature, you've got parliament, which is the legislature, and with it comes the executive, and then you've got this court, which are the judiciary. Those are three spheres of power, right? And in there, they created what they call the National Council of Provinces. In there, you find the traditional leaders, you find the politicians, political parties, you find constituencies of communities. And then you come to provinces. In provinces, you find in it, every province is represented, <clears throat> that is nationally, is represented within provinces. And then within provinces, you get districts, and then you get regions, and then you get to the level of wards. What has not happened is we haven't been able to utilize that machinery that we have currently right now to literally enforce those cascading levels of influence and power. Ward, district, as well as a municipality should have been able to recognize by now, which I know is done in some of our villages right now in South Africa, where you have the village chiefs and then the village, uh, you know, in Dunas, <clears throat> as well as people who are in charge of the village, been given seats on candidacy as councillors as well as mayors and everything. But the pace of that adoption of integrating first the traditional authority into the state and ensuring that traditional authority has a voice has been happening very slow because it's a contest between traditional authority and political power's interest. So that contest will never end unless we find a fusion where we fight on the basis of numbers. So what we're saying is, yes, let's contest it on the basis of numbers. If it's political parties emerging or if it's tribal authority having more numbers and influence, that should be the case. But the recognition of tribal leadership has not yet fully happened and has not happened in a sense that we could all be enjoying the benefits from tribal to regional and to integrating the whole system to making sure that it works for everybody. But provinces have got the largest power because they are independent and sovereign in their own capacity. 
Did you know that in South Africa, every province has its own reserve bank? They did, they don't tell no, them. We didn't not. <laughs> they don't tell yeah. them, but every province has its own reserve bank. They're supposed to have their own reserve bank governors as well as managers of reserve banks in their provinces so that they can administrate, but they don't know. And that's one of the things that South Africa is such a quagmire. The less you know and the less they keep away from you, the better they can govern. You know, that's what I said. For me, I'm, I'm an educator <clears throat> on transformation, on issues of society, on issues of politics. I go on the educational transformation route to help people to understand what they don't understand. Energy was something I mastered and I was able to be brilliant and efficient in and fluent. And then there are very few people who can contest me on it because I've taken my years of learning and studying it and perfecting it. So I, I, you know, I happen to understand this politics, but I know there's a contestation. Political parties are not in favor of tribal authority because they are going to lose political power. At the same time, mm. tribal authorities are not in favor of political authority because if there's political authority, there is no tribal identity. So there's been conflicts of ideas and interests, but at the same time, this is all one. If we have to restore the land, of course it belongs to the rightful owners, which were the tribal kingdoms, authorities that had rule as well as ownership and dominance. Like you have it in, for instance, the reason why Africans love socialism and communism is communism is a model that allows everybody to participate and have a level of authority. And in there, the, you know the word commun communism, when they talk about the <clears throat> structures, every region had its own tribal power, like the Khazars, uh, what you call it, Kazakhstan. You go to uh, the uh, other parts of Russia. All of them are actually tribal authorities, by the way, running yes. inside the whole federation of the Russian Federation today, as we're speaking about. And all those tribal authorities have been given their power to have their own leaders, federal president and this one, but they all come under one umbrella. And that is why we're so in love with this model and socialism, which the Afrikaners did. And that is why I wrote about it in my article to say the, uh, the German Nazi party was actually a socialist party, which benefited everybody, which South Africa took. You know, the National Party was a socialist party. They don't want to identify with socialism because they hate the identity of it, but it's a fact. It comes from socialism. That is how they could grow the Afrikaners, they could grow the English, they could grow the South African economy on socialism basis. Everybody benefits and everybody gets to participate. The state was the driver and anchor of economy from everything, energy, rail, whether it is to do with steel, whether it's to do with industry and everything, and created the opportunities for everybody to participate. Education was made available and it was free. That is a socialism model. So when we talk about socialism, suddenly we are the enemies of society and the West because they know it will benefit and uplift the lives of Africans in the majority. And our terminology, when we talk from a pan-African point of view, of what it defines to be an African, you, Roman, you're an African. Byron, you're an African. Unless you so classify yourself not an African. Because it's not by being European that you're not an African. You're a South African born South African, which means you're defined as an African. You know? And I'll explain to you from a pan-African point of view. Fourth generation. Why. Talk about. My ancestors have been here for four generations. Which means Apologies, you no longer gentlemen. have anything to Europe. Your DNA is African on its own. Oh, yes. Apologies, gents. Crown Prince Byron, I, I really need to go. I do apologize. I'm happy to leave this running. And then you can Thank just you so leave much. when when the, when the, when the uh, conversation is concluded. Byron, is that okay with you? It will automatically upload on the side.
All right. No Apologies. My no, current friends, lovely to meet you. you you've, you've Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Made, made me think a lot. And it's been a real pleasure to, we'll speak again very soon. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So Crown Prince, we'll just carry on and then we'll edit uh, some of this so that Absolutely. we'll drop off. So the way that our editing software works is every time you speak, you're the sole focus. So we're not on the side. So how you see me now, it's not actually how it appears on camera. So it's oh, like okay. every time you talk, you're just the own same thing. Then when I talk, I'm the person that the, the software does. So right. we'll edit this out and no one will notice. Okay. So it's it's very interesting what you're what you're saying there, and you know I, I like what you're saying, but as we both know, the media portrays this as a very black and white issue, and I mean that literally, a black and white issue. If you're a white, you're a foreigner. You know, even mm. my ancestors have been here for four generations, as you say, I'm as African as they come, but according to the media, I'm not. I'm a European possibly because underneath the classification in apartheid, anybody who was white skinned mm. was cast as European. So now they mm. still rely on that kind of categorization, which means that when we talk about benefiting, and there's a word you use, they use the word transformation, you want transformation to occur in the country, the word mm. transformation has become captured, it's become captured yeah. in a way because it, again, it, the word association tells me and what I really mean is, is black economic empowerment. But what I actually really mean is I want to steal what you have and give it to somebody in the elite. That's the way that mm. people are thinking, right? Because it's mm. like theft. It's associate transformation equals theft. That's the brain psyche now. And mm. I suppose, as you and I both know, the challenge is to, as you said, you're an educator. The challenge is now to educate individuals to understand that even whites or African which we've seen with the new BE Amendment Act, that's not how it has it out. The whites are whites and you know Africans are someone else. So it's trying to make that association so that everybody, like me, four generations, and I'm, I'm not that long. I've known Afrikaners that have been here for 20 generations. Mm. And it's to say to them, you are African, you're not European. But then how do you continue with the transformation agenda as you would see it and de-associate the word transformation from theft? There seems to almost be a, a need to rewrite the word association. Maybe use a different word. Look, I think uh, uh, somebody who uh, I think it was who Rupert, right? <clears throat> he toxified the word uh, radical economic transformation because everybody took the word radical economic transformation to mean that he actually said it all means theft. I mean, he wrote it in one of the articles when he was delivering his, uh, I think, his annual uh, report financial report in uh, Switzerland and it says what South Africa is actually currently trying to do with the implementation of radical economic transformation. It simply means theft. <clears throat> and and that was very, I mean, that was bad at the time to, 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 to tarnish all South Africans and all paint all of us as thieves because radical economic transformation was not to give money to a few politicians and then completely close out everybody into the poverty streams. It was to do with giving value, creating value for all South Africans, particularly when we say radical, we mean the, you know, in the most speedy way of bringing about change economically in South Africa. So the word radical meant not holding back on what needs to be done to change the socioeconomic dynamics of South Africans, which means 
the aspect of creating wealth value, increasing the earning potential, increasing the industrial participation, the growth of society, making sure that there is money created. And we're talking about new value and money, not taking away from anybody anything. And 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 I think, uh, you know, I, Rupert was very, Johan Rupert was very vicious there when he, he, he painted everybody as a thief in South Africa who ascribed and wanted to actually drive the program of radical economic transformation. Later on, and I'm glad that the mm-hmm. ANC did a good uh, justice when they went back to, to, to a conference. And in the 2017 conference, it was decided that, no, we can't even be looking back. Radical economic transformation is now a policy of the ANC. And that came out of that statement that, uh, you know, uh, Johan Rupert made after, <clears throat> before, of saying that it's going to be a thief. So uh, all South Africans are going to be thieves when they are advancing radical economic transformation. Radical economic transformation, Byron, happened during apartheid when everybody was moved out of poverty, was taken out of struggle. Remember uh, when 1901, there were concentration camps of Afrikaners that were lost the war against the British. And in that concentration camps, there was an agreement in Britain that they will give over the management of South Africa over to the uh, whites in South Africa who were Afrikaners at the time who were running the colonies. They will end the concentration camps and they gave them the first project, which was the railway project. Why was the railway instituted as a project for industrialization? Because the British were not interested about anything running the country. They just wanted to get the minerals out. So the quickest way is to build a railway that connects them to the port. From the port, they will take it out with ships. So they did that railway infrastructure to connect everything in South Africa that is linked to mineral resources, mining, industrial towns, and processing facilities for minerals to be shipped out and then taken out and exported globally, which was gold and diamond at the time. So that was the agreement which was done to say we'll do the diamonds and then we'll do the gold and we'll make sure that we move it out of South Africa through those channels and stuff. And they wanted the ports, so they had to create the railway to link up the transportation. <clears throat> that was one part of what happened. Then came in the agreement of ensuring that they can employ everybody. So they took everybody out of concentration camps, the ghettos that they had created at that time. And, uh, you know, I mean, there was a definition at one point, which was Herman Hilomir, who was a very brilliant historian, wrote a very good book called The Afrikaner. In that, he says to him that, if I give you the statement, tell me who do you think it is? They are poor, they have lots of children, uneducated, and they live in ghettos. Who would you think it was defining at the time, in 1900s? Early 1901. Because that's that's, that's the word association. The word association is black people, obviously. Exactly. But the definition at the time, it was meaning Afrikaners. They were poor, Mm. have lots of children, uh, uneducated, and they live in ghettos. That defined the Afrikaners Mm. at the time. But when they took on that new agreement with the British and started on the operation of the new South Africa after the act which I spoke about, the act of South Africa, they were then given opportunity to be transformed, being given opportunity to start a new life, start a new country, start a new civilization, as well as a transformation of their society. They were taken out of the lagers and the uh, model that they lived in before of the new colonial states. They were then spread out throughout South Africa and that's how the new towns were started. Every 50 kilometers, they will set up a new town. That is why there was a railway and a post office station created along the railway, right throughout South Africa, every 50 kilometers. And then they created the farm environment so that there could be food production and agriculture to support this machinery and, engine, and, and ingenious feed that was happening. 
They then created the processing facilities. Johannesburg was the center for processing of gold, as well as the education center. That's how VETS was created at the time. So a whole lot of these things, when it was all about radical economic transformation for Afrikaners and for the British. But when South Africa, Africans want to talk about the radical economic transformation of creating similar infrastructure, similar successes that happened before, suddenly we are all literally given a garment and a clothing of being criminals and thieves, <clears throat> which I found very strange. Which I would agree with. So I think, you know, we talked about this and I've said, and Azra's Ramon said many times on our show, that a lot of the things that you're saying, obviously, and you've rightly highlighted as things that the EFF said, and we've said on numerous occasions that we'd actually be inclined to agree with Juju quite a bit if he wasn't like really anti-white. Now, obviously, his anti-white rhetoric in the media is like, kill the bird, right? So we know what he says in the media. That's why it's like, man, get us an interview. Let's, let's, let's chat to the guy. I really want to talk to him. But you I definitely must that, speak to him. That, that, that fear that the average South African has for that is one of the reasons why when we see the government do certain policy steps, such as last year the proposal to remove self-defense as a reason to own a firearm, gets people's blood quite cold. They get quite scared with that. What What's your approach on that? Are you like a, a Second Amendment advocate or are you like, nah, let's get these things off the street? Like, Where do you sit on this topic? Look, I believe in gun rights. I propagate for gun rights and I propagate for South Africans to arm themselves to the teeth, to defend themselves against any criminal and anything that has to do with, you know, encroaching on their security and threats. So I'm a pro-gun owner. I don't even talk about anything else except support. So we must make sure that in the next election, it's the energy and security in South Africa. If we're not talking about those two things, Potholes, they, they will always lie to you. They'll patch it and there will be another Agreed. storm and something else will happen. So it's a moving target. Agreed. But Agreed. on issues like energy, no negotiations. We need to build more new power stations that are coal, that are nuclear, that are hydro, that are anything that has to do with it. And you add with it on top of it, put on solar as well as battery storage, put on the other element of uh, wind when we have it. Put all of those things into the basket. It's about transformation and it will create value. But no one must tell us what we must not do against what we must be doing to advance ourselves. Mm. Gun rights is a non-negotiation. South Africans must start understanding. We, we lost, you know, uh, the ANC has a policy of uh, youth development where we talk about the youth being involved in terms of social and civic service. And one of the things is they should bring back the compulsory military training and enrollment, not for war purposes, because in the past, military training was using young Africaners against blacks at the time. We're not talking about... But, but it, was always, about it was a Genghis, it was like a Genghis Khan strategy to create cohesion between people. So most people don't yeah. know this. Genghis, when Genghis Khan used to go around, he was not a fan of killing the people that he conquered. Mm. So the reason his army was so strong is because he would go and conquer them and he'd be like, right, guys, I can kill you. Or you can join mm. the army and you can become part of us. That's why we have the word Mongol, the Mongolians, which means Mongolian. a mixture of whatever, because as he used mm. to just absorb people. And the way that he would get them to like identify as Mongols was through military conscription. They had to all go to the army, work together, build something for a common purpose, and figure out that the guy that stood next to you that got your back was not that different from you. 
And you all want the same thing. He's your buddy. So That's we want great. the same thing for South Africans. So, you know, issues are such as gun rights, military conscription, participating in civic programs that even if you're not of the military conscription age, you can still participate and be a reservist in the army as well as the police and assisting in terms of the security of South Africa is very important. So we cannot even <coughs> mishmash our ways around it. We must actually have a movement that is all South Africans talking about the importance because I know that there is a bill now currently being discussed that says that even when you're a gun owner, you have no, uh, I think, rights to can defend yourself and to use, uh, what do you call it? They call it excessive force. Lethal force. To use excessive mm. force. <clears throat> yeah. When it has to do with protecting your life. Only on the basis that somebody is about to shoot you or kill you. Can you then retire right, yeah. back? So those are the yeah. things that should not be negotiable. If there's an invader in your yard who's threatening the life of your family and your, 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 your life, you have all mm. the protection rights. I mean, this is constitutional. You know, and we should take these matters up to the constitution to debate them. And so the, Ameri- gun rights so the Americans must be allowed have that. So the Americans have that. It's called castle <clears throat> law. So castle law basically means when they're in your property and they're around your family, you have the right to be able to use whatever means you need to keep your family safe. It's the idea that my home is my castle. And when you're in my castle, Maximum I'm force. king. You can't come there and disrupt it. Yeah, that's mm. right. The so same the thing. Americans we should have, have those rights. So no, the but Americans I, again, have it and it's very sacred to them. You see, South Africans love love racial issues. The gun issue is now only contested by white mm. people who are holding a lot of gun cachets. If they were to leave the race issue out and do it as a South African issue, it's about security for all of us. It's got nothing to do with anybody. We get attacked equally. You know, I mean, there was times where, you know, I got hijacked as a South African. My security was a threat. My house got broken into so many times. My security is a constant threat. So how do I protect myself? I need a gun. I need a, a weapon with me. I need something that's going to give me protection and integrity. So these are non-negotiables. We mm. should fight it as South Africans and not use race as just the premise of wanting mm. to be secure. Everybody else has the issue of mm. security threat in their lives. Today, they are killing everyone in squatter yeah. camps, in townships, in suburbs, in cities and in malls. So. The issue of security is no longer an issue that is segregated to an exclusive class. All of us are affected equally. I completely agree. And so um, there's a word that you said there, and I'm going to agree with you wholeheartedly. The issue is being pushed by the whites in the country. And I agree. The white Karen, which we would describe it on our show, the white Karen, probably from the Western Cape, the safest suburb in the country, has every opinion on everything and every opinion that they want must be some kind of central European hellhold who they don't want to live in for whatever reason. They want us to copy European standards. Like they want us to have the gun rights of England where nobody has them, just the police. And they want us to have this liberal arts rubbish where everybody must declare their pronouns. Then they want us to have some kind of European value where Everybody must go home, uh, go to work, and the kids must get raised by someone else, and no one has any traditional homeland. They want all these Europeanisms, but this is Africa. And so they, they promulgate these ideas here by these foreign NGOs. They get super amounts of funding from Bill and Melinda Gates or George Soros, open source foundations. And those foundations capture the ANC in order to push this rubbish on this on the nation. 
But when you talk to average individuals or royalty in your instance, we don't believe in this rubbish. So no. why are we adopting it? Why are we pushing it? And the idea then that the country is run by blacks for the purpose of black interests does not appear to be true because the gun rights debate highlights that. The gun rights, the anti-gun rights is pushed by a lady named Adele who works for the Institute of Security Studies, which is an Australian and European funded institute pushing these ideas on an African country. And so we, even on our show, we would say, hey, Futek, like this isn't, this isn't for us. This isn't, isn't our country, this isn't Europe. Go to Europe if you want to do European stuff. But unfortunately, these NGOs have really captured this country. And where we see that is actually in the energy debate. Because as mm. Uncle Guidi says, every time he proposes something, some NGO puts up their head and they're like, hey, no, we don't like that. You can't do that. And it's yeah. like, well, what do you want him to do now? Just go sit at home and watch TV all day because he can't do his job. And we agree, he can't. So we do have sympathy for him on that. But now it shows you that there is a huge infiltration of our policy and our security space. Because if you can have so many foreign-funded NGOs, which are agents, and some of them are spies, by the way, for those countries, residing in South we Africa agree. as a spies, operating under disguise of foreign NGOs or NGOs in the local South Africa, propagating ideas that are not even African and South African. Because the biggest problem is our people need housing, water, they need uh, street, uh, proper streets that are tarred, and they need towns and they need cities. Why are these NGOs not fighting for those issues? Why do you want to disarm Africans when we know that there's a globalist policy that says by a certain time, all people must not have any right to sovereignty, even holding a gun will not be a right. It's part of the agenda. Mm. So some of these things, they are pushed from a higher level with a very strong interest of ensuring that ordinary people are taken away in terms of their power, where you cannot have defend, you cannot be a civil defense system where you can actually have your self-defense units in case the state fails, because there's nothing guaranteed. If the state fails, you, you have 100%. to come up and start doing your own self-protection, like you're doing it right now in terms of your own house, the environment, the communities that are taking up their own security into their own hands and ensuring that they can cover up where the state does not have sufficient resources to cover. You know, so those are things that we must be very clear and vocal about. I don't agree with half of these ideas that have been perpetuated, moving away from coal. And that is why they are actually on Gweda's case. Gweda has been very clear from the onset that this is a resource that we cannot disengage away from at that rate. And I'm glad the president has come now lately in his defense. After the U-10 has made on yeah. facing out cold, he went to Paris and told them in Paris, he says, guys, we made a mistake. We had thought that by moving away from coal to embracing renewables, we will be able to be supported in order to match the current requirement of demand versus the supply. But the issues yeah. and the technology is not even yet ready for us to can even migrate. So we're going to have to stay with coal until there's a time where we can move away with technology that is sufficiently replacing coal and that can fill in the gaps. Right mm. now, we can't do it. So that was a very bold statement. In the last so two we... weeks, a lot has changed. Mm. <clears throat> so Guaido must be supported, and I know he's under a lot of flag, and it's because of these NGOs that are funded that we're trying to even push him out as a minister. Remember, the whole of last year, they were just fighting to remove him as a minister That's before right. the appointment of the new minister mm. of electricity. 
and they wanted him to be literally taken out and be embarrassed. And they used all sorts of, uh, you know, mm. cases against him. As well, they well use as the media. Mm. They use the media, yeah, to they write all sorts of articles that are dirty and, and are taking his personality and his credibility. But he's a very strong guy. I mean, he he's not coming from the basis of this, you know, weak, uh, you know, cappuccino sipping, you know, NGO uh, agents who are running around South Africa. Where it comes out of the mining industry, he's been underground. He's been working for the best of his life for about 16 years in the mining industry, underground mining. So he understands the condition of mining and underground mining and how to work with ordinary people. These communities we're talking about that are going to be affected when you take away coal. You're talking about shutting down communities, Belfast communities, communities like Middlebay, communities like Whitbank, communities. So, you know, it's not a small thing. As these people are talking, because the first thing they finish, those NGOs do, they get onto a flight and they fly to Europe and go and enjoy the best of life there. They leave us with a mess behind here. We're still sitting with it. One thing I want to ask you, Byron, why is it that when we talk about African civilization, where we're saying we must create an environment where women can enjoy raising their children and being at home and still educated and enjoy a society where they can build growth and education to their children and rear children, and men can be out in the workspace. Why is it wrong? Yet, you go to Europe, go and check the royal family. Have you ever seen any one of them working? Are the I women out in the so, field? You, you have no idea how... You have no. no idea how, how happy you make my heart right now because <laughs> I recently had this conversation with Ramon. I wanted to include it in one of our videos and he cut it. He was like, no, this is a little bit too sensitive. Let's not go there. But I agree. As we get to a form of AR, the world is automating. As we get closer to automation, the amount of available jobs in an economy will shrink de facto. It is inevitable which most people will be sitting there going, oh, this is terrible, but we should oh. rejoice for it because it means exactly. we can restructure the economy so that the mothers stay at home to look after the kids and do a job that's far more important than some admin or some stupid company for minimum wage. Mm. And that's raise the next generation, educate them, give them a strong moral foundation and a degree of patriotism and the father will do what fathers have done for the last 20,000 years, and that is protect and provide for the family. We should be thankful for that. So when I hear Paul Mashatile or Cyril Ramaphosa go out there and say, oh, but we must mobilize these people and make them owners of this and get them in workplaces, I'm, I personally feel like, nah, uh-uh, no, that's not for us. This isn't the African way of doing things. This is the European way of doing things. If you want to do that, go to Europe. But for the rest of us, leave us to the traditions in Africa. Africa doesn't do this. The woman stays at home to look after the family. The mother, the auntie, the uncle, it takes a village to raise a child in Africa. Not an employee, not an employer, not the state, the village. So why are we trying to disrupt the village? You see, uh, because of this uh, so-called political correctness, we can't discuss these issues. And I don't have that political correctness, mm. so I say what what is right or wrong. Or <laughs> Me people can decide for themselves. It's my values and my beliefs. I, I don't believe in the current system. Even Europe didn't practice that until the First World War, by the way. 
women stayed at home and reared families, homes, and children, and educated at the time because schooling was not even at an institutionalized level until Henry Ford came up with the education system and model, which was American-based, of mm. having children in classrooms and everything. Mm. Education was always private, you know, historically, and was done at home and was actually done through the tutelage and the support of the mother, the aunties, the grannies, and everybody in the family. That's how they kept families together and families together in the way the current if you want to see how people should live don't go and try and, and, and watch movies and understand go and study the lives of royals around the world that is how everybody should be living every day protected supported mm. literally being catered for at an institutional level that is the model of a proper ideal family together even with their craziness half of them because most of the royals are crazy globally around the world european ones right and they are nonsense and debauchery. But the truth of it is, if we all lived in harmony, if we all lived in a level of relative security where we could have division of roles and responsibilities, a man's responsibility historically has been to be the vanguard of finding provision and support to build a family. On the other hand, the responsibility of women has been historically to be the people who would safeguard the nation and educate the nation and bring about a level of moral integrity in how society should be. Those roles have been taken away because there's been so many ideas that have taken over and have infiltrated. Most women I know, even professionals who are highly successful, will tell you, this is not what I want to do on a day-to-day -day basis. I would be happy to do it occasionally, but if I had time to spend with my children and family, I'll be the most happiest. Guys today will tell you that I want to be a man who can be responsible and provide for my home and family and children and relatives and my whole clan and village. Because that's what we do as men. That's what the role of a man is about. But because there's so much of everything confusing roles today, we are told that this can be done and this cannot be done. But I am very still, still originally traditional. And I still pursue our traditional ways of life, which we come from historically as Africans. And I know Europe, this civilization was studied from Africa, so there's nothing different. If they say European tradition and, and civilization is about, you know, modernization, it's a different total thing. But what we're talking about in terms of roles and responsibilities, success in a society is we must balance ourselves. And the idea of women being made into laborers and today exploited to a point where we can even legalize things like prostitution. It's completely foreign to us as a people, you know? And then the media won't talk about it because it's not famous, it's not a popular issue because they want to create the current nonsense that they've created around the world where they can make women into slaves and, you know, second class, whatever, and exploitation. Ending a wage we all know is not something. We all want wealth so that we can live off that wealth and enjoy prosperity and goodness. We only earn a wage as well as a peasant wage on the basis that we have no other option. African custom, let me tell you, Byron, was based on values whereby if there was wealth in a community, we all shared it. So you didn't earn a salary. You enjoyed the wealth that belonged to the community, like what the Arabs are doing. Why do you think the Arabs are so successful in their model and nobody's protesting? All the Arab, uh, uh, what do you call it, citizens, 
because they are all benefiting out of the revenues that is created in the society. And what they create out of themselves is business opportunities and the rights and royalties that they are sitting with. An ordinary Arab youth today owns almost everything that is happening in Dubai, that is happening in Saudi, that is happening in Oman, that is happening in Qatar. They have the highest wealth and GDP as well as they are regarded as the highest, you know, you know, in, in uh, what you call it, uh, individuals on wealth creation because the state shares the revenue of everything created with them. So it's the same should happen with all of us. As much as you know, Prince Harry and William earning about, you know, they have about each minimum of five billion dollars uh, or pounds because of they've inherited it, and this is the money they earn anyway without doing much. What is wrong? of that system where we create wealth in an African context where we can all share it equally like that. You know, so th those are the things that we must be very clear about. And I know you guys are, uh, you know, you're modern, you're liberal, and you want to be nice about these issues and then talk what is acceptable at the media level. But some of these issues don't... Hey, don't, swear, don't, don't swear at us. Hey, what, we what, where did we upset yeah. you? Where, why are you yeah, calling we, us liberal? We need hey, to come in here. How dare you, sir? No, How dare nice. you? Call us liberal. <laughs> <laughs> You're too nice. End of interview. That's, that's a swear word on this like channel. This. That's that's a swear word. <laughs> no, no, We're modern guys, modern men are too liberal. This going, they get very swayed by so well, ideas. Now you just days, swear you know? at us. <laughs> no, not for us. So, not yeah, for us, guys. We have to go we, get to we the back, We back that trend. That's why we're. That's why we're outcasts. We're like, hey, we we don't don't swear at us like that. That's not us. We're not liberal. That's <laughs> yeah, a dirty we're, word. We're, we're friends here. Please, let's please, go back Grand to the Prince, of Let's treat each other with respect. <laughs> <laughs> and we agree. We agree completely. Which is why when you mentioned that topic, I like you saw. I get excited. Like it's a, that's that's a very it's a topic very close to me, and I agree completely with that. Mm. And this idea that South Africa must adopt all these gender kind of norms and we see this coming out of the western cape quite a bit with the da let's let's all adopt like a democrat party lines on on he they them mm. it's zerd. like what the hell man like this is africa why are you bringing this nonsense here like go somewhere else so we completely agree um but it's disheartening for us to see the governing party kind of mm. being swayed by those topics and everything that you've said we agree with which shows as we always say, this is not the norm in South Africa, which then raises the relevant question. When did the ANC become captured by foreign forces and how do we get them out the ANC so that we can tr return to a high degree of nationalism? South Africans mm. first, let's look after the wealth of our country. Let's look after the people of our country and grow our country. Who gives the flying monkeys what goes on Australia? If you care so much about it, go live there. But for the rest exactly. of us, we want to we wanna land that our ancestors, our future generations will want to live in. Because let's be honest, no, none of the future generations want to live here right now. And that mm. goes for white, black, Indian, colored, Chinese, doesn't matter. They all mm. want out because they can see that the country is not going in the right direction. The media frames this as, oh, it's only white flights. It's only the white sleep. No, it's not. It's mm. everyone. So we want a country where all of our kids 
can grow up in the land of our ancestors and identify with the soil. It's their soil. They must also enjoy the benefits of this land, not go live in some crap hole in Australia. That's not their soil. This mm -hmm. is where they are. This is where they belong. How do we create this, this way? How do we do this and get rid of all this NGO foreign forces out of the governing party and return to that nationalism? Look, it's simple, Baron. We, we must stop being apologetic and be very clear. The, the, the reason why we became well-known in our debate in relation to energy was because we, we stopped being politically correct and spoke the truth. Sorry, Grandparents, I will edit this. Uh, how's your connection? My connection is good. I don't know if it's my connection or uh, the other connection, because I can see there's a movement on the one side, but, uh, you know, there was no so, voice. So we... Okay, perfect. Cool. <laughs> All right. So, so you were saying we must speak the truth. Uh, and he we said must be un spoke unapologetic. The... Yeah. yeah. And, and I think the truth is, is key. Right. We know we what the truth to... is about Oops, making South Africa great for everyone who lives in it. And that is yeah. sovereignty, energy, psychological sovereignty, wealth sovereignty, social sovereignty, political sovereignty. At the end of the day, sovereignty is what makes this place great and what will make it great. Exactly. And we, we must stop being apologetic. The reason why ideas such as all these nouveau ideas, liberal and neoliberal ideas are taking over, for instance, the ANC, is because the ranks are no longer occupied and swelling with ideology of people who are sober in their heads. Most of the leaders have already been infiltrated in terms of being influenced by these neoliberal ideas and has taken over the, the majority thinking of the policy issues around, for instance, the ANC's policy formulation. But if majority of us swell the ranks as members, as society, and go in and say, if we want to change the ANC, we are going to come in major numbers and we are going to change it with our own formula and process. We will do that because it's, it's a democratic movement. It has a room to expand each and every direction you decide. And that's what we must find a space to do in, within what we have in terms of our capacity to reorganize ourselves. You know, political movements exist for that reason. And that is why they are supposed to be democratic and open to ideology. The firm, firm principles of it are always there. And those cannot change. But in terms of how we direct issues, like how these NGOs work, they take, a, they take NGOs led by one or two or five people in it. And most of them are just funded for a particular agenda. And that's all that they do. They run an agenda until everybody else embraces it. And that's when they receive their accolades of success. The same thing. We mustn't be disheartened by the work we're doing. We must be even much more fierce. Get more people who are interested in the topics and the ideas and get them behind the process of ensuring that we can transform the society and move away from race politics and race identity politics. And what we talk about in terms of South Africa, which is racially now polarized, everything is about black and white. For what? I mean, that's a boring thing today. After 1994, we're still identifying ourselves as DA being a white party and the ANC being a black party. That's ridiculous. South Africa is for all South Africans, and we should be talking about the interests of everyone. Of course, the majority will be Africans because of the numbers. 
But in any African ideology, there's never been an exclusion of anyone. We talk about a family as everyone as part of this particular branch and theme of what we want to achieve. So me, I'm not apologetic. I don't care what people say. I say it on national television. They've tried to censor me. They realize that it's useless. They still need my views and my help. When we came out, remember, <clears throat> about four months ago, when we warned that if South Africa does not take the warning serious that there will be a national grid collapse because we could see the power plants, energy availability factors were going down. There was over 19,000 at that time. Power plant capacity, which has broken down, some of them were shut down strategically because they wanted to reduce uh, air quality emissions. And they were told to shut down this plant so that they don't work. And that was just before, about six months or three months or so before the Reuters actually left his job. When we told them that if you go at this rate and you dig below 20,000 megawatts, you're going to face a national blackout, a grid collapse, because the current state of the power plants are not in a good, healthy state, and you need to go back and do the fundamentals. Everybody says, no, we're howling and we're making up. Until they realize that there is a problem, that we're actually heading for a catastrophe. And in a matter of time, we said it takes three months to restore these power plants and make sure that they can come back into activity and they can be operational and you can avert a grid collapse. It took South Africa one and a half months to reduce half of load shedding. Have you seen that? One and a half months. So which means that three months that we yes, predicted and we were on spot about was so accurate that they went and did exactly what we said and reversed the cycle of the near grid collapse scenario. And they ensured that there is higher energy availability. They moved from 50% energy availability. Now they are hovering around 60. And their aim is now to reach 60, to reach 70 or 75, which means we will be now below the beyond the threshold of load shedding and everything. So it, it takes a hard conversation and it takes hard fighting to do this kind of a work. And you must have thick skin. You know, we, we hear all sorts of criticism. I don't care. People can howl and say whatever they do. We are going to say what is fundamentally truthful. It might be hurtful. It might intimidate those in power because they were doing it for nefarious means. The people who were shutting down the power stations were shutting down the power stations on the basis that they wanted to implement the one, the emission standards issue, which they did minimum emission standards, which was to do in terms of you know increasing the amount of renewables that are supposed to be flushed into the system. The secondary part of it is they were just negligent. They didn't want to repair, fix, as well as maintain power stations. So they didn't allocate budget and resources to power stations. So through that campaign of just ensuring that we are the voices of conscience on energy, if it didn't happen, today we'll be sitting in a catastrophe. We might be sitting in a country that didn't even have electricity or power at this time, and it will be like anarchy, literally, you know, a, a completely collapsed state. So sometimes, you know, you follow your guts and be strong about it. You know, and uh, young people must understand it's your time now. There's old people that must be phased out and they're old already. They know there's not much for them to do except to sit at home and play with the grandkids. But we're giving them too much work when we make sure that they, they, they are dominating their spaces. So we must go and take them over. So, Byron, we're going to nominate you for Western Cape well, uh, ANC. We get it. <laughs> No, 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 I don't, I don't, not, the Western Cape's not for me. I live in the Eastern Cape. I'm very thankful I live in the Eastern Cape. Please don't send me to the Western Cape. 
I didn't I didn't upset you that 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 much. Like uh, okay, I'll stay we'll, I'll stay we'll, here. We'll, we'll, I'm in we'll, Nelson we'll, we'll, Mandela Bay. The Cape guys, to actually uh, completely bring you into the system. But guys, if you want to dominate political parties thinking, you need numbers and you need participation in the structures. That's as simple as that. And and once you participate and you're vocal, even any party, whether it's DA, EFF, ANC, they can't ignore you. We do it through our structures. For instance, Transform RSA has a voice of society and has a voice in the political institutions because they know what we say is based on fundamentals, research, insights, information. And we want the good for South Africa. We want to transform this economy. We want to make sure that we all enjoy the wealth and success of South Africa and the reindustrialization that we need, you know, to live in a country that is beautiful, that is enjoyed by the majority and everybody else has a share of a good, great life in it. We completely agree. And if you really want to nominate me for the Eastern Cape to join the ANC, I won't say no. So, hey, guys, we graduated from being DA shills to PA shills to ANC shills. Hey, don't say this channel doesn't evolve. We actually agree with a lot, a lot of what happens out there. And as you'll see, we're, we're South Africans first. But we're we going to call it there. We're going to say thank you very much. You've given us an hour and a half of your time. An hour and a half, uh, hour and a half of your time from royalty is like massive. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I completely agree with every single thing you've said. I don't think there's anything I was like, no, nah, I didn't agree with that. So I just 100% agree with you. This was brilliant. And thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And it's been really a pleasure.